What is up, friends? Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets, the show that keeps you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin macro related topics. Today, we're going to talk about NFTs and fungibility. So it's going to be a good show. First, I'm going to step through Pompliano's interview with Beeple. He's the quote unquote most famous digital artist in the world. He's the one that just sold that digital JPEG for $69 million. And uh, then we're going to go step through one of my articles that I wrote recently on Bitcoin's fungibility. So again, I'm, I'm always learning when I'm researching for this show, and I hope you guys are learning the same. If you want to support my work, BitcoinandMarkets.com, become a paid member, you get some you know member benefits, and you support not only this free podcast, but you support me doing my other free podcast, FedWatch, and my free newsletter that comes out every week. So lots of free content, as well as my Discord server, keeping that on there and keeping uh, some conversation going. So uh, anyways, let's get into Pomp's interview with Beeple. Okay, we're going to try this again. Um, I tried recording this multiple times now, and my OBS is sounding crappy, and I can't get it fixed, and um, I'm not having success syncing this up. So I'm going to do my best here to respond to this Pompliano interview. Uh, first off, I'm not a huge Pompliano fan. Uh, I know he's a successful guy. I respect him for, for the success that he's had, uh, and I, I just don't listen to a show. I, I don't find it being a huge amount of signal but every once in a while he does have a good show and my guys over there on discord they always point it out to me so uh, this was a good interview and uh, Beeple is the guy he's interviewing the guy he's interviewing and he is the most successful digital artist in the world uh, he's the one that just sold that jpeg for 69 million dollars i can't believe it but uh, I thought this we could get some insight into the industry uh, from the guy himself, you know, straight from the horse's mouth of people. So um, this was a good interview. Let's get going on this. It, just to skip the first few minutes, he started in IT. He had a nine to five. His passion was art. He uh, started doing these every days and he'll explain this to you. But then he gets into, you know, he went into starting his own business and doing freelance work and, and stuff like that. So he has been an artist in the space. Um, but uh, this, this is now about his everydays. I just wanted to play this so you guys can get an understanding of, of uh, the, the man himself. So let's talk about uh, the everydays. Um, when did you start this? Well, you've done 5,000 or more of them. What was the idea behind doing the everydays and how did you get started? Sure. So those started in um, May 1st, 2007 was the, the first every day. And I saw an illustrator out of the UK named Tom Judd who did uh, a sketch a day. And I thought that was a really cool idea. And, and, and I wanted to get better at drawing. And so the first every days are actually drawing. I, I wanted to get better at drawing. So it's like, okay, I'm going to do a drawing every day. And after a year of that, I realized I learned a lot about drawing. Um, I was still very, very bad as I still am today. Very bad. That's not like I'm actually really bad. Um, and so, but, and so I thought maybe I could take that and use it to teach myself a 3d program, which I didn't know any 3d program. Um, and so I started doing a render every day. That's what it's called when you sort of make a program in a 3d program or make a, a picture in a 3d program. Um, so I started doing a render a day using cinema 4d. 
Um, and then I kind of just, you know, again, kept doing that for the next, the next 12 years. And so the every days are, again, a picture start to finish every single day. I'm not like banking these up. Um, it, it's about two hours per, per day, roughly. You know, it sort of varies wildly depending on what's going on that day. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, you know, sort of always been the case. And it's got to be posted somewhere online before midnight. And that's sort of the, the kind of boundaries of the. Where do you come up with the ideas? You've got some absolutely epic things you've created. You've got some gruesome things, some inappropriate things. There's some nasty things. Some nasty, nasty things. shit. Um, where do you come up with the ideas? So it, it's one of these things where um, I, I come up with the ideas a lot of looking at other people's stuff. Like I'm very much inspired by other people's work and sort of looking around and, and um, seeing different things. And it might be, you know, a different shape. It might be like, oh, I never thought of making, you know, a creature like that or, or you know, having this sort of scale or this sort of perspective. So it's really pulling from a bunch of different people, sort of um, a bunch of different digital artists work. That, that's a big piece of it. That is definitely a huge inspiration. And then I would say the other thing is just like current events. Like I, I'm very much into, um, you know, current events and sort of what's going on and inspired by politics and sort of internet. All right. So he's your typical artist. Um, I don't see anything really malicious about him. We'll see um, in the future if he has some guilt for exploiting people, because I think he has a feeling here uh, as we go through this that he is exploiting people or there's some bubble Ponzi atmosphere going on. So we'll see if he has guilt. Um, but yeah, he's just your typical artist. Let's move on to the next section. Uh, this is about NFTs. And so when you think about this, um, why go from doing like this amazing uh, digital art that obviously you're very, very skilled at to then the NFTs? Was it something that you saw with the technology, uh, with the market? Like, like what caused you to uh, want to try the NFTs rather than just continue to post the, uh, the digital art on Instagram and other places? Well, I think with the NFTs, I mean, one, it was sort of like, okay, well, people are making a lot of money on this, if I'm being totally honest. Like that is definitely, uh, it was, and they're selling something that I never even thought you could sell. And so it's kind of like, oh, this actually makes total sense to be able to, Okay, so there's the money shot. Um, this is something that I didn't think you could actually sell. Well, yeah. You mean a JPEG for millions of dollars or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions? I think he sold his for multiple now for multiple millions. And the Christie's auction for the everydays, the 5,000 everydays, he sold for 69 million. You didn't think there was a market? You were in the industry, dude. You knew exactly what's the ins and outs of this thing. You're an artist and you didn't know that you could uh, sell this stuff that there wasn't a market for. <laughs> and then all of a sudden people are making a lot of money and you jump in. So, I mean, he obviously knows there's something going on and then he rationalizes it right after that. Oh, but it makes so much sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Collect my very digital artwork in a digital way. Because before I, I would sell prints and stuff like that. And it's sort of like, that's one thing you can kind of, you know, take my work and print it out, but like my work is digital. And so it's meant to sort of be viewed on a screen. Um, and so being able to sell it and collect it in a digital way, you know, is something that to me is very exciting and something I, I didn't really see sort of coming. That wasn't really like, Oh, in the future, there'll be a way to sort of like, you know, collect this and have it, it be total rationalization here. You feel very natively digital. That that definitely was not on my radar, as I don't think it was pretty much anybody's. Um, so that to me is is very exciting. And then just like NFTs in general, really sort of um, like touch on all of the things that I'm interested in. It's got the art aspect, obviously, and a bunch of like crazy possibilities with that. 
Um, it's got the technology aspect. I feel like I'm finally sort of using my computer science degree here. Um, and it's got the investing sort of aspect of it, which is something I've also, also been very sort of interested in. Um, That's dangerous, you know, like when something appeals to a broad range of people that are just tangentially or have some experience with something, right? So you you can hook a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of tech-savvy people that might understand how this is working, but they 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 don't have enough expertise to be able to say uh, this is garbage <laughs> or, or it's not, right? Like you're not selling it to super experts. You're selling this to the lay public that just has an interest in a topic that's kind of dangerous. Um, just in terms of, of different market dynamics and this and that. So uh, to me, it feels like, you know, the, the most interesting combination of all the things that I'm like super, super interested in. Yeah. And so when you first started and making money, started uh, looking at the NFTs, what's the first thing that you did? Uh, so the first thing is a, a bunch of people sort of kept sort of uh, hitting me up and being like, oh, you got to look at this NFT thing. You got to look at this NFT thing. So the first thing I did that I remember, and this was in about mid-October, um, is I, I sort of looked at Super Rare and it was like, what the hell? Like people are paying like huge sums of money for stuff, again, that I did not think you could sell at all. And so the first thing I did was I talked to uh, Pac, who is, you know, sort of like, like, you know, a friend and I saw he was the top selling artist on Super Rare. And I was sort of like, what is going on here? And so he was nice enough to sort of. So he got in October. That's six months ago. He got in in October, six months ago. And the first person he talked to was another artist that was selling for probably millions of dollars at the time. So like. To me, I wouldn't talk to an artist necessarily. I would say what's going on with this technology. Like, why are people spending millions of dollars? Give me kind of a refresher course of, or, or sort of beginner's course, or, you know, sort of introduction to the different platforms, how the technology works for minting, you know, why people are paying this much for it, um, and, and sort of trying to understand. There's that question. Understand, like, you know, just a, a base level what's going on here. And from there, I just dove, like, head, head down, just, you know, down the rabbit hole, as they say, and, and really just started reaching out to anybody um, I could who would, you know, jump on a Zoom call with me and sort of like explain, uh, you know, where they saw this going, what the limitations were, what people have done, what people have, haven't done um, from the CEOs of all these platforms to collectors, to artists in the space, to anybody sort of pushing in some direction. I, I jumped on a call with and like, you know, sort of picked a brain. Got it. And so okay. So CEOs, collectors, I mean, there can't really be any collectors yet because the, this is such a new thing or this is not, this is such a small thing. Um, and then artists, right? So he's talking to people that are want this Ponzi to continue, right? And the CEOs are probably the collectors too. I mean, they know that they need to keep the the pump going, and so they will reinvest in the space. Um, but yeah, I think that's a bad thing. He didn't say programmers, right? And he didn't say like uh, long term OGs in the space. He said CEOs and artists and and collectors, which there are none. So um, just interesting who he talked to and what he learned. Like he learned, first he learned how to do it, like how to, you know, exploit people, how to sell JPEGs for millions of dollars. This is ridiculous. So when you think about the technology stack right now, maybe walk through people, uh, how you create the digital art, right? Talk a little bit about kind of the... Uh... Okay, this part isn't that interesting. Let's go into... 
he just talks about how he makes it with the programs, the software that he uses. Okay, here we go. Conditions to put out. Got it. And so when you think through this, why is the NFT market taking off so much? Is this just a bubble? Is it unsustainable? But like, what's your analysis as to why there's so much interest and, and so much demand right now uh, in this market specifically? I think there's a couple of things. I think there is definitely a lot of hype. I think there's no way to not be like, okay, there's, there's people are, people are going ape shit. Um, so I, I'm not, you know, so naive to think that that's not a piece of it. Um, yet at the same time, and, and so I think there's this thing where it's kind of, it may be a bubble, but it's sort of one of these things where I also see a, a huge amount of legitimate long-term value for this, this as an asset class. And I think we've only scratched the surface of, um, different mechanics for how these can work. Um, different. This is an extraordinary claim, right? So yes, obviously he says it's a bubble and that's good that he's saying that, but then he rationalizes it and says, but there's a lot of long-term that legitimate long-term value here, right? This is a new asset class, et cetera, et cetera. These are all extraordinary claims that need extraordinary evidence. So let's see what his extraordinary evidence is. Uh, because this is art is not a new thing. Okay. It's been since the cavemen putting red ochre on the cave walls, right? The art is a very old thing. I mean, it's a very well known industry and job. <laughs> and NFTs are not new either. NFTs have been around for at least 10 years and they probably predate Bitcoin, right? But they were, they've been around a long time in Bitcoin for sure. One, one of my first, when I first got into the space, when I, uh, into Bitcoin, I was enraptured by counterparty. Um, and that was the only altcoin I ever bought was counterparty tokens. And this was a NFT or a color coin layer on top of Bitcoin. And Vitalik, when he came in, he was in obsessed with color coins and he couldn't do what he wanted on, on Bitcoin. So he started Ethereum. I mean, this is a very old idea. It's been around for a long, long time. So, yeah, he's been here since October, but this is not new. This is not new at all. Let's see what his extraordinary evidence is. Utility use cases, because a lot of the utility use cases, you know, could be dependent on things that happen in the real world. And right now, the real world's kind of, you know, everything's got a big asterisk around it because of COVID. So we really haven't even been able to see a lot of these utility use cases really sort of, um, you know, played out. Um, I look at people who are sort of like, oh, you know, this, you know, if you buy this NFT, it gets you some backstage, you know, concert. Well, those concerts aren't able to like happen yet. So we haven't really even seen that kind of play out. Um, but I think I'll, I'll throw it back the other way, right? That COVID gave and lockdowns gave this opportunity for people to sit in front of their computers and start pumping into these Ponzi's. Look at how they got into Robinhood, you know, into retail investing. It, it's these people that sat around and they thought, Hey, I'm going to roll. I'm going to roll some dice. I'm going to play some online poker. I'm going to pull the slot machine. And that's what these NFTs were. It is a, it is a complete uh, bubble of demand of these people just sitting in front of their screens. Right. So it, again, it's been a long time that we've had NFTs and people have sat there and thought, like a, people a lot smarter than people, people a lot smarter than some of these Ethereans have been thinking about how to use NFTs for a long time. And they haven't happened way, way, way before COVID. We're talking a decade. Okay. And it hasn't happened. Why? Because you don't need an NFT for anything.
this reminds me of a solution without a problem, right? Because the solution of NFTs is not new. They've been around for a long time, like I said, but the, they constantly are looking and ra- looking for and rationalizing a problem that doesn't really exist. It's the exact opposite of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is the result of decades of demand. I mean, the very first internet, uh, you know, you have those error codes. You guys are familiar probably with 404, like when you go to a website and that link is broken or something. Well, there was an error code early on for payments. I, I can't remember if it's 403 or 406, one of those, something like that. Um, that was for payments. They wanted to do, do digital payments right away. Uh, and digital payments took off, of course. PayPal, when they first came out, they wanted to do something just like Bitcoin, but they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't raise money on that idea. So they ended up just becoming a payment processor. Um, academically, you have the cypherpunks. You have all these people trying for decades to create a uh, private digital money uh, on the internet, a decentralized private digital money on the internet. You have things like Digicash and eGold, all that stuff. Um, so that demand was there. And then when Bitcoin was actually finally discovered by Satoshi, it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't catch on right away. Adam Back, who was the, a co discoverer of proof of work or co inventor of the idea of proof of work. And, uh, when Bitcoin came out, he, he, it was just another idea because there's so many ideas. People are trying to figure this out. They're trying to solve this problem. And it wasn't until Bitcoin finally got a market value, I think, that, that Adam Back like said, hey, this is something I want to get into this. And there, there's some talk about maybe Adam Back knows Satoshi or is Satoshi or something. But, you know, I'm just saying that this wasn't when Bitcoin was launched, it didn't have a market value right away. It took years, like two years, I think, of zero price until they uh, it finally had had some value. And then people were like, oh, maybe this is it. Let's just see what happens here, right? This is a solution to this problem we've had for a long time. And that's opposite of these NFTs. These NFTs are a, they're, they're in look of, they're in, they're looking for a problem to solve. And that's why there's so all this talk about, oh, the utility use case here, the utility use case here. It's just getting started. Well, that's because they haven't freaking found anything that is legitimate yet. It's been a decade or more that these things have been around and they haven't found a valuable use case yet other than selling JPEGs for millions of dollars. It is absolute garbage, people. Absolute garbage. Good Lord. I think there are just so many uses for this stuff and I think it's such an interesting new um, you know, way to, to sort of store value that I think, you know, people are seeing that. And I think buzzwords sort of long-term like macro high level looking at this as an asset class, I think this could be something that really sort of appeals to, um, you know, younger sort of, uh, investors. And I think there's nothing really written in stone that investors, you know, right now, the, the for the last 50 so years or whatever, the, the predominant way that people sort of invested was like equities. And, there's nothing that says that has to just keep going forever. And I think a lot of. Okay. Um, equities are a lot older than 50 years. They've been around for 400 years and they're not even that popular. I mean, 
that that's most people don't invest. Most people do not invest. So for example, I think it's only like 20% of people uh, own stocks and people that can invest in their 401k, only 50% of them do. And out of those 50%, only they only have $50,000 worth in stocks. So not very many people have very much value at all in stocks. Well, let's see what else he says here. Younger investors, they kind of hate corporations. They really don't like companies. And so to think that they're automatically just going to invest their... Okay, I'm getting a as this air of socialist from him because uh, young people don't like companies. Well, I, it doesn't really matter what young people like. Um, you know, there is... Uh, there's a reason why this is going to sound bad, maybe, but there, a lot of rich folks are rich because they produced value. Most of them. There's some of them. Yes, there's corruption out there. Um, but um, obviously most of the corruption is through the government, which socialists want to use the government to come in and fix it. But, um, most rich people got rich because they provided value, you know, because they're good at something because they have skills. And a lot of the opposite is also true. There's a lot of people without money because they don't have these high value skills to add a lot of value to society. And young investors aren't like, there's going to be some that are really good investors. Most of them are not going to be. Most of them are going to get wrecked. Most of them are going to lose their money to other people. And what you do is you create this atmosphere that is ripe for scams. And then you have to have people like this, uh, people like me and people on like this show or things like this show trying to warn people against scams because you're creating this atmosphere where, Oh yeah. Young investors can just get in and do this and that and this and that. Well, no, they're going to get taken to the cleaners and this new asset class, quote unquote asset class. It, there's nothing that's saying it's going to be taken, not taken over by whales that are doing the same thing. They manipulate, they propagandize, and then they dump on you and they take your money. It's very dangerous to say that, oh, these new investors don't like companies. They can invest in NFTs. Oh my God. I, I'm not one that likes these, this narrative about unbanked. I, I, I just, I don't care at all about this argument about young investors liking NFTs more than companies. I think it's a dangerous argument to make. For money and companies moving forward, like, I don't know that I would, that, that's not set in stone. Like they could look at other things that speak more to them in terms of asset classes. And I think NFTs could be a huge, huge, um, you know, piece of that moving forward that they would. Yeah. It's not set in stone that they will use stocks or whatever, but what is set in stone is that young investors are going to lose a majority of their money. If they go through this type of, if they, they become investors, they're going to lose a majority of their money. Rather invest in, in something that, you know, they have a bit more ownership over um, and they can sort of do what they want with a little more. And they identify with more than sort of, okay, I grew up, let me put my money in GE and IBM and all this fucking shit that I don't give a fuck about. Or oh, it's funny to see Pompliano's reaction because this is, you know, his job is uh, he works with Mark Yusko. What's the name of their firm? I can't remember the name of their firm now, but um, yeah, this is what he does. Or like, this doesn't speak to me and it, it um, you know, it isn't really something I want to support in some ways. So I think that, well, there is a lot of hype right now. I think um, 
I, it also feels like we're, we're still very much at the beginning of this. The beginning of this. No, you're at the beginning of this, people. You've been here since October. You know, you're at the beginning of it. And you're sitting at the top. A guy that's been here for six months is at the top. I mean, that doesn't seem very sustainable to me. Uh, but no, th- this is not the beginning. This is the same old, same old. This is like the third or fourth iteration just since I have been in 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 bitcoin that we've seen these nfts come become popular so oh man oh man okay let's skip ahead to some more stuff because then he talks about making millions selling stuff and he's laughing the whole time and very excited and smiley and whatever so let's get into the physical token piece a drop in the bucket of what it could be talk to me about uh the physical tokens um before we talk about kind of the investment case the physical tokens uh, that you created. This is, I think you're the first and only person to have done this so far. Uh, for those that are just listening and not watching, uh, Mike just got up and walked away. Now, oh, he's back now. Okay. I'm back now. All right. <laughs> so, this physical token is. Yeah. So these are the, the, you know, sort of physical tokens that were sold with the last drop. And this is something that I think is, is to me really interesting and something that I'm excited to sort of explore more, because I think this is something that for a lot of people can be a great sort of entryway into this stuff, because it's one of these things where it's like, what the fuck? Why the fuck would I buy a JPEG? What the fuck is this stuff? It's like, okay, you don't really need a, you don't even, let's just take all those arguments off the table. What am I buying? You're buying this thing. Okay, that's it. I get it. Like, it's one of these. For, for those people who are just listening, basically it is uh, maybe a one foot by one foot, uh, give or take, uh, almost looks like plexiglass, but inside of the plexiglass. Yeah, it's sort of like, it's like a, it's kind of like a, looks like sort of a, um, like a Kindle Fire type thing you know, encased in acrylic. Um, and so it's, it really just keeps looping through the, the video. It's a video screen and it sort of keeps looping through it. And it's something that you can just put on your, put on your bookshelf and, you know, plug it in and it just keeps playing. There's no interface. There's no buttons. There's no turning it off, changing the video. Um, it's got a signed, uh, this one's not signed or whatever, but it's got a signed number titanium backplate so that it shows, you know, your edition number. Um, and then it's also the video itself has a QR code. And what that QR code does is if you scan that, it goes to beeplecollect.com that has, you know, additional information about this artwork um, and immediately shows who owns the artwork. BeepleCollect.com. Centralized thing. Um, and immediately shows how the, the artwork was made. And it's just something to sort of like uh, a community to kind of tie the, the sort of, you know, collectors together. People. All right. So I think this is extremely interesting. Remember, he's been in since October. He's brand new into this. And his first instinct, other than selling a JPEG for millions of dollars to unsuspecting people is to make physical tokens or to make physical things. Um, this is a beautiful piece of art. And when I first saw this video, I was like, man, I want a big one of those, you know, three feet by five feet on my wall, all encased in acrylic and the screen just going through some, uh, some beautiful pieces of digital art. I think that would be cool. That would be cool as hell. But you know, those things are valuable because of they're they're physical. They're made of stuff. They're they're actually uh there's a cost to making them, right? There's scarcity involved. But not JPEGs. It's not the JPEG inside of the the frame that is valuable. It's the frame itself, right? They they sell these similar things already where you can buy them for your mantle and they you know, you put a little USB stick in there that has a hundred pictures and it will just go through all of your pictures, uh, similar to that, but for these NFTs. Now, what I think is super interesting is that, okay, 
gets into the space. He's selling these JPEGs for millions of dollars. And his first reaction is to make physical representation. That's interesting because I think what he's doing is he's responding to the dissonance. He's responding to the dissonance in his head that, oh my God, these things aren't worth anything, but people are paying for this. How do I kind of provide some actual value? Oh, well, I can make a really pretty thing. And this is designed well. It's very, very cool. Um, I might even want to buy one. But I wouldn't care for the NFT inside of it. That's not what's special about this product. Um, but yeah, he's, so he's rationalizing. Uh, I love the quote from the Matrix. And I've thought of this a couple weeks ago, and it's coming up in my mind more and more that there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Uh, because we respond to incentives and we don't, consciously respond to incentives either we can respond to incentives with uh you know that change our hormones or we can change our uh anything that reacts to our environment will give us incentives to act a certain way and so what he's doing is he has this dissonance that is causing a reaction that uh, he is providing something of actual value okay um this can be used in all sorts of places in Bitcoin. And maybe I'll talk about that more on another episode, but, um, yeah, he's just responding to his incentives, which include this cognitive dissonance that he's not really provide JPEGs aren't really valuable. Uh, NFT is not really valuable as NFT is just a digital signature, but this little piece of physical art is valuable. It just makes, makes it bearable inside of his own mind. So anyway, let's continue and see what else he says people who like own this stuff. And so, you know, I, I wanted to do something because there, people have done sort of physical, um, you know, sort of things in the past tying NFTs uh, with these, but it always seemed very, you know, sort of separate, like, okay, you get a print with it. And, well, which is worth more, the print or, you know, the NFT. And I wanted it to be something where they were very sort of tied together and they felt like one cohesive, um, very digital product um, that, that you wouldn't really sort of think of separating. So along with that, Okay, now he's just going to show this box that he has, this packaging. It's very pretty. I think it looks valuable, and it adds this air of value to his product. Uh, so I think it's interesting. But the rest of the show isn't too groundbreaking. That's it, guys. That's it for NFTs. If you have more suggestions or things you want me to react to, uh, hit me up in DMs. And let's move on to the next one. All right, let's get into this post that I put up on my other blog. It is btcm.co, and it is titled Fungibility of Bitcoin. So I start off by talking about fungibility comes up all the time, but what really is it? So I say people are familiar with the functions of money, you know, store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account, but the most people are not familiar with the characteristics of money. So these would be characteristics of some good that makes it like naturally fulfill some sort of monetary role in society. And uh, those those are hotly debated or they're different, whoever you ask. And the Federal Reserve has this list on their website and they say it's durable, portable, divisible, uniform, scarce, and widely accepted. 
The Mises Institute via Guido Holzman says, scarce, durable, divisible, recognizable, homogeneous through space and time, malleable, and beautiful. None of them mention fungibility directly, but the Fed does say uniform, which is pretty much the same thing. And Guido Holzman says homogeneity, which is pretty much the same thing. So uh, in, in the Bitcoin dictionary, I list the characteristics that make good money, or this is what I say about it. The characteristics of money used to rate its fitness are scarcity, durability, portability, fungibility, divisibility, and recognizability. If a good has a related abundance of a relative abundance of these characteristics, it will tend to be used in a monetary role. Fungibility. It basically boils down to uniformity between units, and this would be like in a broad sense. So if you have one unit of a good, you can replace it one-to-one -one with another unit of that good. Uh, so each unit can substitute for another unit. I have in this article, an example would be number two yellow corn. Uh, these are what's traded. Gold is also fungible, um, despite the fact that some bars or coins might be fake or that they are different qualities or even different measures. So you might have a half ounce, you might have a one ounce gold coin or a tenth ounce gold coin. They're, they're not directly fungible for each other, obviously, but uh, ten one tenth gold coins would be fungible with one one ounce gold coin. Uh, same with dollars, right? So dollars are fungible, um, but a $1 bill and a $10 bill are different. <laughs> They're different denominations. So the denominations are obviously not fungible, but the good itself, the dollar and the gold or the corn here in, this, in these examples. Um, a non-fungible good, good is a good like an NFT or something that is supposed to represent something that's fundamentally different. And examples I, I state are real estate. So each house and each property is fundamentally different. Um, or owned cars. So some like my car in the driveway, that is unique. It's not substitutable by exactly for another car. So I stepped this through to make it a little bit more clear. So if you borrow a fungible good, when you return it, you don't have to return the exact same good. For example, if I borrow money, I can pay you back with any Satoshis or any dollars. That That's fine. I don't have to get the exact same dollars to pay you back, right? So th those dollars are fungible because they can substitute for each other. But if I borrow your car, I have to return the same car to you. You know, I can't just go find the same make and model and, and give you a different car. They're not fungible. So that's the difference between fungible and non-fungible. Just to, uh, to make it crystal clear here, if I rent a car, I have to return the same car. It's non-fungible. But I return that car with new gas in it. So the gas is fungible. Um, so according to this simple logic, Bitcoin is obviously fungible. And then now I step through a few examples. Number one. And we hear this a lot from like privacy coin advocates, Monero people specifically. They say, uh, the fact a UTXO can be clean or tainted means all Bitcoins are non-fungible. So a UTXO is an unspent transaction output. And that's just what the network keeps track of the final balance of every current location of any Satoshis or Bitcoins out there. They will be located in a UTXO. 
So if I receive a million Satoshis in a payment, they, the, the blockchain still has the record that they used to have it, but now that's a spent output. I have the unspent one because I am the tip of the spear. I'm the last place that those, those, uh, Satoshis went to. So that is a UTXO. So, and if I know that, or if the authorities know, whoever uh, knows that Alice <laughs> is a drug dealer and, and she sent me my coins, then my UTXO is actually tainted by her, right? Because that is an illicit activity. So those are tainted. Um, that's the idea behind this criticism is clean or tainted. That means all Bitcoins are non-fungible because if some can be clean and some are tainted, they're not the same, right? And they're not indistinguishable. <laughs> okay, that was a long uh, explanation. But this argument is invalid because it, it's not characterizing the Bitcoin. It's characterizing the, the subjective interpretation of the viewer, right, of the person. I can, there are many reasons uh, why somebody can discriminate against your UTXO or your Bitcoins. Um, and it doesn't have to be taint, right? It, I mean, taint can be anything. Taint can be, I don't like you personally. So I'm never, I'm not going to expect, I'm not going to accept your money. Um, your coins are tainted to me because I don't like you. Uh, it could be that like in gold, in a case of gold, if your gold coin that you're trying to spend has a specific dent that makes it not look real or, or something, someone might not accept it from you, but that doesn't mean that it's really non-fungible, that all gold is non-fungible. That means that this one coin is going to be discriminated against. Um, what else? Or like I have in here, if you don't accept uh, money from a certain country, so uh, being in, in the U.S., if someone tries to spend euros, uh, they don't, they're not going to accept it, right? But that doesn't mean that euros are non-fungible. That just means that this person doesn't accept your euros. Uh, they want dollars. These are all examples of how liquidity is not fungibility. Individual circumstances individual subjective interpretations of taint or demand will affect the liquidity of those coins, but it's not going to affect the fungibility of those coins. Let's see. I have another example here. So, so I just say for the above argument to be true in order for a good to be fungible, discrimination must be impossible. That simply cannot be the case. Nothing would ever be fungible. We are humans, after all. We can discriminate against each other for infinite reasons. A shop owner might discriminate against a customer that has a MAGA hat on, right? It doesn't matter that... This affects Monero, too. So this goes out to all those Monero files out there. Monero is discriminated against because it's anonymous, right? I mean, it's been taken off of exchanges a lot. And perhaps somebody's not going to accept your Monero because... They need to KYC everything. They need to have this uh, chain of custody for their certain systems that they use. So they will, they will discriminate against you because of the anonymity. Or it still doesn't take away the possibility of discriminating against you because of your MAGA hat, right? <laughs> or because of your, um, open dime t-shirt or whatever. So, uh, there is, Many infinite, there's infinite ways to discriminate against a Monero person or Monero coins. It, it's just a smaller surface, but, uh, a fraction of infinity is still infinity. And I don't know how else to put that. I, this, this whole idea is an equivocation fallacy. So they, they are trying to make 
They're trying to equate liquidity with fungibility, but they're two separate ideas. Fungibility is simply that the goods are uh, interchangeable in a broad sense. If I borrow Monero from you, I will accept any Moneros back. I don't have to have the exact same coins come back to me. Um, same with uh, Bitcoin, right? Same with Satoshis or same with dollars, whatever. Whatever we're talking about. This liquidity is different than fungibility. Okay. Number two argument. Every Bitcoin has its own provenance or history. It's a chain, a chain of title, making it a non-fungible token. <laughs> now, this is more nuanced. And I read this from, uh, I think it was a satirical tweet. But I've seen things like this. Okay, and this is actually a pretty good uh, nuanced <laughs> argument. Uh, the satirical tweet said that Nick Carter said it. I don't think he said it, but um, anything's possible. Anyway, so this uh, this one is harder to debunk. But look, what it's it's true that the history of each Bitcoin is recorded on the blockchain, um, at least the on-chain history is recorded. I mean, that is what is stored in the blockchain and what enables us to know the supply of Bitcoin. So we can count it, but it's it's not enough to define the entire history. It's just enough history to count it, to count the coins. So um, this argument is trying to say that because you can count Bitcoin means that it's non-fungible. And let me try to describe this and break this down a little bit more. So if I have five kernels of corn on my desk right here and each kernel of corn is separated by one inch i know that kernel number two is different than kernel number one because i can see it with my eyes i can see that that one is different it's actually an inch to the right i know that those two they can't occupy the same space at the same time i know the laws of physics will not allow for that i see five of them i know they are all different from each other fucking a they're non-fungible no, that doesn't make sense. They are still indistinguishable. The fact that I can count Bitcoin does not mean that they're non-fungible. It's as easy as that. So this is why I write. <laughs> My first thought is, so what? History is not a meaningful differentiating factor with which to make them non-fungible. Does it matter if gold came from a gold mine in California or Venezuela? How about if gold passed through the hands of organized crime several transactions ago? No, gold is still fungible. It doesn't matter. The history of it doesn't matter. You can still count it. It's fine. It's fungible. So, um, but I think this is an interesting idea. So I, I do walk through in this article different, more nuanced responses to this because I was pretty intrigued by this, uh, this question. So, uh, one of the things is taint is this provenance, this history is attached to UTXOs. Um, and it is spread with Satoshis. So like this is the same with taint or this provenance. Um, it's non-specific. So it's not perfect. It's not an exact. It, you can never be exact. You can't, you don't taint a Satoshi. You taint a UTXO. It's like one bad apple spoils the bunch. So it's not specific. That's a problem that make that makes the history imperfect. And I, I'll say that the history is uh, incomplete. Then this is just to point out that the history that is tracked to count Bitcoin is not a complete history. That is it for this one, guys. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. This is a listener-funded podcast. 
To find out more, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com. That is where you'll also find the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, subscribe to the free weekly newsletter. Uh, That is the best free weekly newsletter in Bitcoin called The Fundamentals Report. And check out the Discord. We're building a nice community over there with lots of simultaneous topics and rooms going at the same time. So bitcoinandmarkets.com and you'll find all of that information. Thanks for listening. See you next time.